Hello and welcome to episode 65 of a pay-per-view where I review the papers and big headlines over the week and place events and headlines in their true context in a weekly podcast. Pay-per-view available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Stitcher, Player FM, Google Podcasts and now streaming on the iconic media platform. And the first subject this week is mental health. This is in The Guardian. English schools buying in mental health support has almost doubled in three years. Why? The number of schools in England buying in professional mental health support for pupils has nearly doubled in three years as prompt access to NHS services for those children most in need continues to be a problem a new survey has found. In 2016, more than a third of schools surveyed provided school-based support for students' emotional and mental well-being. By 2019, 66% of school leaders said they were commissioning their own professional support for pupils, including school-based counsellors. The poll by the National Association of Head Teachers indicates that schools have developed an improved understanding and recognition of children's mental health needs, but head teachers say there is still a lack of capacity in specialist services for those with more serious problems. Just 4% of school leaders who took part in the survey agree that child and adolescent mental health services respond quickly to requests for support and 5% felt children refer to it get help when they need it. They shouldn't need to get help at all. The article continues. Paul Whiteman, any. HT General Secretary acknowledged early intervention was critical and welcomed schools increased understanding of children's needs, but warned that there was more serious need. Teachers needed to be able to refer pupils onto experts who would be able to provide timely support. We can see that schools are responding to an increasing need and a lack of capacity in specialist services by commissioning their own support, such as counsellors. Although to be applauded, this is another area where schools are being forced to use scant resources for urgent provision that is not provided for in their budgets. He continued, there is still concern that when children do have more serious mental health needs, professional help is not easily available. Teachers are on the front line for children's mental health, but they are not qualified medical specialists, and they shouldn't be either. The government has made children's mental health one of its priorities, but despite additional investment and tangible progress, the Children's Commissioner Anne Longfield last week said England was still a decade away from decent mental health services for all children. The survey of 653 primary and secondary schools... Why... You see, there's two ways to look at that. You can say it's a shame that we're still a decade away from the health services we need to deal with the rising number of children with mental health problems. The other way to look at it is, why should we need any support on the scale that is needed now in the first place? The survey of six... 153 primary and secondary school leaders across England was conducted on behalf of both the NAHT and the children's mental health charity Place to Be which provides school-based support. Place to Be's chief executive Catherine Roch said three children in every classroom, three children in every classroom now have a mental health issue so it's positive to see these results which show that more school leaders are responding to this need by providing professional support for children and young people within school. Well I don't think it is positive, I think that's more and more negative. Because the fact that they are means that they need to be. And that's the problem. We're doing more. We shouldn't have to be doing more to tackle the problem. The quote continues. But schools cannot tackle this problem alone. They need extra help in school, backed up by NHS services that can step in when more specialist support is required. The article. The survey found 79% of schools have a whole school approach to positive mental health. 78% have a designated staff member responsible for mental well-being. At 67% of schools, staff have undertaken mental health training, and 66% of school leaders said pupils feel confident to talk to staff about their mental well-being. Just 
44% of school leaders, however, thought staff would feel confident dealing with a pupil suffering a mental health crisis compared with 39% in 2017. The Education Minister Nick Gibb, commenting at the start of Children's Mental Health Week, said, As a government, we are investing hundreds of millions every year in mental health support. Why? Hundreds of millions a year. That's the scale of the problem. Or oh, that's how much is being spent on trying to address it anyway, at least, at one level. Including providing better links between mental health experts, schools and colleges and providing quicker access to specialist treatment where needed. Through our new compulsory health education, pupils will be taught how to recognise the signs of poor mental health so they can ask for help earlier. The one question nobody seems to be asking, and I've asked it a few times, is why are mental health cases increasing all the time? What is it about society and kids' lives, especially kids, not only adults as well, but especially kids, that's what this article is about, that is generating this situation? Well, social media is a major cause of childhood anxiety and depression, and suicide in some cases. Not that those really running social media, not freakazoid frontman Zuckerberg, give a shit. Silicon Valley is run by the cult, after all. Technology is rewiring kids' brains, as I talk about in pay-per-view in print. Transgender promotion is creating a sense of unease in kids when they shouldn't even be thinking about gender or sexuality as a kid. Kids are being over-sexualized, not least through entertainment, by performers on behalf of the cult, even though those, even though those performers won't even know the cult exists, like most people don't know the cult exists. Exam pressure, needless exam pressure I would say. It's a massive part of stress, depression, and again, in some cases, suicide for kids. I talk about the education system at length in pay-per-view in print and explain why schools are little more than programming centres for kids. I talk in episode 38 about kids facing ever-increasing pressures. Is it any wonder from this perspective that so many kids end up needing mental health support? Or believing they do? Because I don't think all of them do, personally. Some of what is termed a mental health problem or a disorder was called in the past growing up, growing pains. Conditions like ADHD, for example, are in many cases just examples of boredom in school. Children and young people alone are being, never mind adults, are being prescribed drugs on an ever increasing scale to deal with mental health problems, which in many cases are emotional problems, which is a different thing. Interesting article here from John Arapapour, a journalist, independent journalist. The number one mind control program at US colleges. Here is a staggering statistic from the National Alliance on Mental Illness. More than 25% of college students have been diagnosed or treated by a professional for a mental health condition within the past year. 2017 this was published. Let that sink in, 25%. Colleges are basically clinics, psychiatric centres. Colleges have been taken over. A soft coup has occurred out of view. Colleges have been taken over. A soft coup has occurred out of view. You want to know where all this victim-oriented, I'm triggered and I need a safe space comes from? You just find it. It's a short step from being diagnosed with a mental disorder to adopting the role of being super sensitive to triggers. You could call it a self-fulfilling prophecy. If I have a mental disorder, then I'm a victim and then what people say and do around me is going to disturb me. And I'll prove it. The dangerous and destabilizing effects of psychiatric drugs confirm this attitude. The drugs do, in fact, produce an exaggerated and distorted sensitivity to a person's environment. You want to know where a certain amount of violent, aggressive behavior on campuses comes from? You just find it. 
The psychiatric drugs in particular antidepressants and speed type medications for ADHD. You want to know why so many college students can't focus on a study? You just found one reason, the brain effects of the drugs. The usual variety of student problems are translated into pseudoscientific scientific categories of mental disorders and toxic drugging ensues. A college student says to themselves, I'm having trouble with my courses. I don't understand what my professors want. My reading level isn't good enough. I don't like the professors who have a political bias. I'm confused. I miss my friends back home. I feel like a stranger on campus. I'd like to date, but I don't know where to start. There are groups on campus. Should I join one? Maybe I need help. I should go to the counselling centre and talk to a psychologist. That's what they're there for. Maybe I have a problem I don't know about. And so it begins. The student is looking for an explanation of his problems, but this search will morph into having a socially acceptable excuse for not doing well. Understand the distinction. After a bit of counselling, the student is referred to a psychiatrist who makes a diagnosis of depression and prescribes a drug. Now the student says, That's a relief. Now I know I have a problem. I have a mental disorder. I never knew that. I'm operating at a disadvantage. I'm a victim of a brain abnormality. Okay, that means I really shouldn't be expected to succeed. Situations affect my mood. What people say affects my mood. And pretty soon the whole idea of being triggered and needing a safe space makes sense to the student. He's heading down a slippery slope but he doesn't grasp what's actually going on. On top of that, the drug he's taking is disrupting his thoughts and his brain activity. But of course the psychiatrist tells him no, it's not the drug, it's the condition, the clinical depression which is worsening and making it harder to think clearly. He needs a different drug. The student is now firmly in the system. He's a patient. He's expected to have trouble coping. On and on it goes. Here's the background. Here is what psychiatry is all about. Wherever you see organised psychiatry operating, you see it trying to expand its domain and its dominance. The Hippocratic Oath to do no harm. Are you kidding? The first question to ask is, do these mental disorders have any scientific basis? There are now roughly 300 of them. They multiply like fruit flies. An open secret has been bleeding out into public consciousness for the past 10 years. There are no definitive laboratory tests for any so-called mental disorder. And along with that, all so-called mental disorders are concocted, named, labelled, described and categorised by a committee of psychiatrists from menus of human behaviours. Their findings are published in periodically updated editions of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, printed by the American Psychiatric Association. For years, even psychiatrists have been blowing the whistle on this crazy process of research. Of course, pharmaceutical companies who manufacture highly toxic drugs to treat every one of these disorders are leading the charge to invent more and more mental health categories so they can sell more drugs and make more money. Yes, on one level it's about making more money, but ultimately it's about impacting the health of the population negatively, which plays into the depopulation agenda, which plays into the smart cities agenda, which I've talked about before. We live in an inverted society, in what I call the inversion invasion and... The pharmaceutical cartel is a wonderful example of that, where what it's supposed to be, is the, and what we're told it is, is the exact opposite of what it is. And the same goes for even, to an extent, hospital treatment and healing in general. It's not about healing. Here and there it is. I mean, if you break your arm, then some of the work that surgeons do is amazing. But in general, I mean, the biggest killer in America is the treatment. The article continues, in a PBS Frontline episode, does ADHD exist? I would question whether it does, personally. Dr. Russell Barkley, an eminent professor of psychiatry and neurology at the University of Massachusetts Medical Center, unintentionally spelled out the fraud. The PBS interviewer said, skeptics say that there's no biological marker, that it is the one condition out there where there is no blood test and that no one knows what causes it. 
Barclay says, that's tremendously naive and it shows a great deal of illiteracy about science and about the mental health professions. A disorder does not have to have a blood test to be valid. If that were the case, all mental disorders would be invalid. There is no lab test for any mental disorder right now in our science. That doesn't make them invalid. The article continues, oh, indeed, that does make them invalid, utterly and completely. All 297 mental disorders, they're all hoaxes, because there are no defining tests of any kind to back up the diagnosis. I don't know if I would agree with that, personally. I don't, I don't think they're all hoaxes, necessarily. There are obviously things that can go wrong mentally. Certainly, we should ask questions about some of them, including ADHD. And certainly, there are conditions which are just invented, like ADHD, I would say, just as an excuse to drug more people. Absolutely, that happens, which also makes more money for the pharmaceutical cartel. The article continues, We are looking at a science that is not a science. There's more. Under the radar, one of the greatest psychiatric stars who has been out in front inventing mental disorders went public. He blew the whistle on himself and his colleagues and for years almost no one noticed. His name is Dr. Alan Francis and he made very interesting statements to Gary Greenberg, author of a Wired article, Inside the Battle to Define Mental Illness from December 2010. Major media never picked up on the interview in any serious way. It never became a scandal. Dr. Alan Francis is the man who, in 1994, headed up the project to write the latest edition of the Psychiatric Bible, the DSM-IV. This tome defines and labels and describes every official mental disorder. The DSM-IV eventually listed 297 of them. In an April 19, 1994 New York Times piece, scientist at work Daniel Goleman called Francis perhaps the most powerful psychiatrist in America at the moment. Well, sure, if you're sculpting the entire canon of diagnosable mental disorders for your colleagues, for insurers, for the government, for Big Pharma, you will sell the drugs matched up to the 297 diagnoses right up there in the Pantheon. Again, I would disagree that all of them are false, but certainly some of them are. Long after the DSMIV had been put into print, Dr. Francis talked to Wyatt Greenberg and said the following, There is no definition of a mental disorder. It's bullshit. I mean, you just can't define it. After a suitable pause, Dr. Francis remarked to Greenberg, These concepts of distinct mental disorders are virtually impossible to define precisely with bright lines of the borders. Francis might have been obliquely referring to the fact that his baby, the DSMIV, had rearranged earlier definitions of ADHD and bipolar to permit many more diagnoses, leading to a vast acceleration of drug dosing with highly powerful and toxic compounds. To repeat, Dr. Francis' work on the DSMIV allowed for more toxic drugs to be prescribed because the definitions of bipolar and ADHD were expanded to include more people. Adverse effects of valproate given for bipolar diagnosis include acute life-threatening and even fatal liver toxicity, life-threatening and inflammation of the pancreas, brain damage. Adverse effects of lithium also given for a bipolar diagnosis include intracranial pressure leading to blindness, peripheral circulatory collapse, stupor and coma. Adverse effects of Risperdal given for bipolar and irritability stemming from autism include serious impairment of cognitive function, fainting, restless muscles and neck or face, tremors maybe, may be indicative of motor brain damage. Dr. Francis' self-admitted label juggling act also permitted the definition of ADHD to expand, thereby opening the door for greater and greater use of Ritalin and other similar compounds to the treatment of choice. Ritalin is prescribed very, very often to people who don't actually need it. So what about Ritalin? The article says, In 1986, the International Journal of the Addictions published an important literature review by Richard Scarnati. It was called An Outline of Hazardous Side Effects of Ritalin, Methylphenidate. Scarnati listed a large number of adverse effects of Ritalin 
This psychiatric drug plague is accelerating across the land. Where are the mainstream reporters and editors and newspapers and TV anchors who should be breaking this story and mercilessly hammering on it week after week? They are in harness. Thank you, Dr. Francis. I mean, the drug adverts in America pay for American television. That's how many there are. And I know that from someone who's been to America many times. The article continues. Let's take a little trip back in time and review how one psychiatric drug, Prozac, escaped a bit of fate by hook and by crook. It's an instructive case. Prozac, in fact, enjoyed a rocky road in the press for a while. Stories on it rarely appear now. The major media have backed off. But on February the 7th, 1991, Amy Marcus's Wall Street Journal article on the drug carried the headline, Murder Trials Introduced Prozac Defense. Also on February the 7th, 1991, the New York Times ran a Prozac piece headline, Suicidal Behavior Tied Again to Drug. Does Antidepressant Prompt Violence? A shock and review study published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, 1996, version 184 number two, written by Rhoda L. Fisher and Seymour Fisher called Antidepressants for Children, concludes. Despite unanimous literature of double-blind studies indicating that antidepressants are no more effective than placebos in treating depression in children and adolescents, such medications continue to be in wide use. On September the 14th, 1989, Joseph Wesbeck, a former employee of Standard Graveyard in Louisville, Kentucky, walked into the workplace with an AK-47 and an SIG sour pistol, killed eight people, wounded 12 others, and committed suicide. Family members of the victim subsequently sued Ellie Lilly, the maker of Prozac, on the grounds that Wes Becker had been pushed over the edge into violence by the drug. February 1990, American Journal of Psychiatry reports on six depressed patients previously free of suicidal ideation who developed intense violent suicidal preoccupations after two to seven weeks of Prozac, or fluoxetine, treatment. The suicidal preoccupations lasted from three days to three months after termination of the treatment. After... An earlier study from the September 1989 Journal of Clinical Psychiatry by Joseph Lipinski, Jr. indicates that in five examined cases, people on Prozac develop what is called akathisia. Symptoms include intense anxiety, an inability to sleep, the jerking of extremities, and bicycling in bed or just turning around and around. When pressed, proponents of these SSRI antidepressant drugs, Prozac, Zoloft, Paxil, etc., sometimes say, well, the benefits for the general population far outweigh the risk. But the issue of benefits will not go away on that basis, the article says. A shock and review study published in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, 1996, written by Rhoda L. Fisher and Seymour Fisher, called Antidepressants for Children, concludes, despite unanimous literature of double-blind studies indicating that antidepressants are no more effective than placebos in treating depression in children and adolescents, such medications continue to be in wide use. In wide use, this despite such contrary information and the negative dangerous effects of these drugs. There were other studies. Emergence of self-destructive phenomena in children and adolescents during fluoxetine treatment. Published in the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, 1991, Volume 30, written by R.A. King, R.A. Riddle et al. It reports self-destructive phenomena in 14%, 6 out of 42, children and adolescents who had treatment with fluoxetine, Prozac, for obsessive compulsive disorder. July 1991, Journal of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, Hisako Kuizumi, MD, describes a 13-year-old boy who was on Prozac, full of energy, hyperactive, clown-like. All this devolved into sudden violent actions which were totally unlike him. September 1991, the Journal of the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry, author Lawrence Jerome reports the case of a 10-year-old who moves with his family to a new location. Becoming depressed, the boy is put on Prozac by a doctor. The boy is then hyperactive, agitated, irritable. Then he calls a stranger on the phone and says he is going to kill him. The Prozac is stopped and the symptoms disappear. 
there are no defining physical tests for any of the 300 so-called mental disorders. All diagnoses are based on arbitrary clusters or menus of human behavior. The drugs are harmful, dangerous, toxic. Some of them induce violence, suicide, homicide. Some of the drugs cause brain damage. So the shrinks need to move into another model, another con, another fraud, and they're looking for one. Meanwhile, the business model still demands drugs for sale. Big Pharma is not going to back off. Trillions of dollars are at stake. And in the wake of Colorado, Sandy Hook, the Naval Yard, and other mass shootings, the hype is expanding. We must have new community mental health centres all over America. Here is a story Dr. Bregin tells in his classic book, Toxic Psychiatry. It says it all. Roberta was a college student, getting good grades, mostly A's, when she first became depressed and sought psychiatric help at the recommendation of a university health service. She was 18 at the time, bright and well-motivated, and a very good candidate for psychotherapy. She was going through a sophomore year identity crisis about dating men, succeeding in school, and planning a future. She could have thrived with a sensitive therapist who had an awareness of women's issues. Instead of moral support and insight, her doctor gave her hold on um, medication. Over the next four years, six different physicians watched her deteriorate neurologically without warning her or her family about tardive dyskinesia, motor brain damage, and without making the diagnosis, even when she was overtly twitching in her arms and legs. Instead, they switched her from one neuroleptic antipsychotic drug to another, including Navine, Stelazine, and Thorazine. Eventually, a rehabilitation therapist became concerned enough to send her to a general physician who made the diagnosis of medical drug damage. By then, she was permanently physically disabled with a loss of 30% of her IQ. My medical evaluation described her condition. Roberta is a grossly disfigured and severely disabled human being who can no longer control her body. She suffers from extreme writhing movements and spasms involving the face, head, neck, shoulders, limbs, extremities, torso and back, nearly the entire body. She had difficulty standing, sitting or lying down, and the difficulties worsen as she attempts to carry out voluntary actions. At one point, she could not prevent her head from banging against nearby furniture. Can you imagine that? She could hold a cup to her lip only with great difficulty. Even her respiratory movements are seriously afflicted so that her speech comes out in grunts and gasps and spasms of her respiratory muscles. Roberta may improve somewhat after several months off the neuroleptic drugs but she will never again have anything remotely resembling a normal life. Warning from Dr. Bregan, published on his site bregan.com. Most psychiatric drugs can cause withdrawal reactions, sometimes including life-threatening emotional and physical withdrawal problems. In short, it is not only dangerous to start taking psychiatric drugs, it can also be dangerous to stop them. Withdrawal from psychiatric drugs should be done carefully under experienced clinical supervision. Methods for safely withdrawing from psychiatric drugs are discussed in Dr. Bregan's book, Psychiatric Drug Withdrawal, a guide for prescribers, therapists, patients and their families. I'll offer another illustration. This one is from the Daily Mail, February 7th, 2008. A young woman of 25, Eleanor Longdon, tells a story to reporter Claire Campbell. Through a drugged haze, I heard the doctor's words as he gazed down at me, lying in bed on a locked psychiatric ward, far away from my family and friends and feeling more lost, lonely and terrified than I had ever done in my life. I felt ashamed too, as though it was my fault that I had been diagnosed as mentally ill. Getting out of bed, I stumbled to the bathroom, walking awkwardly, and to my immense embarrassment, drooling from the mouth as a result of the side effects of the medication I'd been given. I felt dazed, my thoughts confused, unable even to remember exactly how long I'd been in hospital. I looked at myself in the mirror and got a shock. I was scarcely able to recognise the person I saw there from the shy 17-year-old who had left home for the first time only a few weeks before, full of excitement about her first term at university. Seventeen. I wondered, why am I here? 
I still didn't really understand. It was true that those first few weeks at college had been stressful for me. Like many of my fellow freshers, I had felt homesick and uncertain in myself. At school, I had been diligent and conscientious. Arriving at college, I felt torn between continuing to work hard or reinventing myself as a cool and more popular party girl. All around me, I saw other students pretending to be someone they weren't in the pressure of sustaining this seemed enormous. But I managed slowly to make friends and find my way around the campus as well as start speaking up for myself in tutorials. Then, one morning, out of the blue, I heard a quiet voice in my head commenting, Now she's going to the library. After that, I occasionally heard the voice again. It never said anything dramatic, and I didn't find it threatening at all. I remembered having listened to a radio program which described this experience as one that sometimes occurred to lone yachtsmen or prisoners in solitary confinement, and put it down to loneliness. The mind, it doesn't have any external stimulation, creates its own, and that's what that is. It goes on. Sometimes the voice was also a useful indicator to me of how I was really feeling, such as the day it sounded angry following a tutorial in which another student had unfairly criticised me. After I returned to class the next day and put my point of view across more forcefully, the voice in my head once more resumed its usual calm tone. This reassured me that far from being some sinister psychiatric symptom, the phenomenon was probably no more than my own externalised thoughts. And... If you look at that, it sounded angry following a tutorial in which another student had unfairly criticised me. As I said, this is where this safe space, trigger-free zone mentality comes from. The progressives, the social justice warriors, and censor these people because they're saying things I don't like. And the system, the authorities say, yes, of course, we'll save you from those horrible people with opinions you don't like, especially through social media owned by the cult. The statement continues, but then I made the fatal mistake of confiding in a friend. I will never forget the horror in her expression as she backed away, repeating, you're hearing what? When I mentioned the voice, she looked really scared and told me I needed to see the college doctor as soon as possible. Her reaction frightened me. I made an appointment immediately. The doctor's face became very serious at the mention of the voice and he insisted on referring me to what he called a hospital specialist, but what turned out to be a consultant psychiatrist. What I wanted and needed was to talk to someone about my feelings of anxiety and low self-esteem since I'd arrived at college. It's what psychiatrists and psychologists are supposed to be there to do, talk. Otherwise, what makes them any different to a GP? Okay, one is for physical problems, the other one's for emotional or mental problems, but it's the same principle, isn't it? A lot of the time, you go to a GP, they prescribe you something, in many cases. Exactly what happens again and again with psychiatrists and psychologists. And they're supposed to be able to talk to you and find a way forward that doesn't involve medication, or at least only partly. Anyway, it goes on. What I wanted and needed was to talk to someone about my feelings of anxiety and low self-esteem since I had arrived at college, but the psychiatrist kept emphasising the significance of the voice, as though we were discussing a mathematical formula in which having this experience automatically meant I must be insane. Even when I talked about my work for the student television station, I could tell from her face that she thought this was fantasy. I felt I walked into that room as a normal, if slightly stressed and vulnerable young girl, but left it labelled with a diagnosis of a paranoid schizophrenic in my interest broadcasting dismissed as delusional. Even at that first meeting, the consultant was already discussing with me the possibility of inpatient treatment at a psychiatric hospital. First meeting. She also put me straight onto a course at Risperidone, aka Risperdal, which I've already mentioned. A strong antipsychotic drug whose side effects include weight gain, involuntary tremors, and difficulty in walking. From that moment on, I felt cut off, alienated not only from my university friends and teachers, but from my family and upbringing. Suddenly, I was no longer a middle-class, educated young woman with a bright future ahead of me, but a potentially dangerous mental patient. V. 
feeling the stigma of this, I did not tell anyone that I've been referred for weekly sessions with a psychiatric nurse, as well as further monthly appointments to see the consultant. During these meetings, I tried again to talk about my search for identity since leaving home, but these very ordinary feelings of adolescent insecurity were immediately interpreted as symptoms of a diseased mind. Although I didn't believe I was mad, I trusted, as most people would, the medical view of the psychiatrist over my own instincts. Not always a good idea, especially if you're a university student, I would say. It goes on. At my second meeting with the consultant two months later, she suggested I admit myself to hospital only for three days to undergo tests. Not wanting to worry my parents, I confided in my personal tutor, who assured me that details of the nature of my illness would be kept private. I was shocked when I arrived at the psychiatric hospital, which had once been a Victorian asylum. It was very old-fashioned, with bars on the windows, double-locked doors into my horror and mixed wards. I was by far the youngest female patient there, and I felt very vulnerable. I knew straight away this was not somewhere I would get well. Four hours after I was admitted, I tried to leave, but was coaxed into remaining by a nurse on the ward who told me, Everyone feels like this at first. Well, it's no surprise, is it? Over the course of the next few days, I underwent a routine brain scan, which found no evidence of abnormality but had no therapy of any kind. I was simply given medication and left alone. Again, at the end of four days, I felt I'd had more than enough of the hospital and asked to be discharged, only to find myself under the threat of being forcibly restrained if I tried to leave. I was absolutely terrified and contacted my parents at the end of that first week to let me know where I was and ask them to come to see me. But by the time my mother arrived, the effects of the drugs had started to kick in, making me confused and sleepy. I felt unable to explain properly to her why I was there or what was wrong. In the meantime, the one calm voice in my head had been joined by another more strident and critical voice. Over the course of the next few weeks, the number of voices, some now male as well as female, and far more frightening, gradually increased until finally there were twelve. Of these, by far the most dominant and demonic was the threatening tone of a man. At first it was only his voice I heard, but one night during my second month in hospital I awoke to a hallucination of him standing by my bed. Hugely tall and swathed in black, a hook where his hand should have been, like a character from a horror film. I thought this was the result of the drugs I'd been taking and of my distress at being confined in hospital, but the consultant convinced me this was a further symptom of paranoid schizophrenia. I stared at my reflection in the mirror, wondering if it might be true that I was mad. I felt as if I was trapped in a nightmare, having needed nothing more than reassurance about my normal feelings of insecurity after having left home. I was now labelled as a schizophrenic, drugged and confined to a locked ward. I'll read that again. I felt as if I was trapped in a nightmare, having needed nothing more than reassurance about my normal feelings of insecurity after having left home. I was now labelled as a schizophrenic, drugged and confined to a locked ward. Just ponder on that. And how many other young people are in her position, having gone through the same process from university? Yeah, inside I still felt sane. I knew I had to get out of hospital before I started to see myself as a mental patient. Each time a nurse asked me if I thought there was anything wrong with me, I'd answered no. This was clearly not what they wanted to hear. Now I decided to try answering yes and see what happened. As soon as I began acquiescing to treatment, taking on medication and agreeing to do what I was told, I was finally allowed to return to college. After three months in hospital, I went back to university, a very different and far more disturbed student than when I'd left. As a result of the side effects of my drug treatment, my weight had ballooned from 9 stone to 15 stone. I also suffered from constant trembling and a stumbling walk. I still don't know how the other students found out where I'd been, but they obviously had. Within a week of my return, my door in the halls of residence had been defaced with graffiti, and I'd been spat at on my way to a lecture. Worst of all was the tutorial where, after I had an essay criticised by a tutor, 
Another student leant across to me and whispered, That's finished you off, psycho. I ran back to my room in tears, staying there for the next few days and feeling I wanted to hide from the world. In the meantime, the dominant demonic voice became more horrific, telling me the only way I would ever get better was if I agreed to follow his instructions. These included not only self-harming, but also cutting off my hair. He threatened terrible punishments, such as burning my room down if I refused. Desperate for some peace, I started to obey his bizarre instructions. Word now got round the university that I was behaving oddly talking to imaginary people and cutting my arms. I felt defeated and demoralised, no longer caring whether I lived or died. At my next appointment with the consultant, I said I thought my medication was making the voices worse and asked if I could stop taking it, but she insisted I had to continue. When I admitted that I felt suicidal as a result of the way I was being bullied at college, she sent me back to hospital for a further seven weeks. For the next four months, I struggled on at university, as well as having another two brief psychiatric admissions. By the time the summer vacation arrived, I knew I could not carry on battling both against the voices and the cruelty of the students. I returned home to my parents, my self-confidence totally destroyed. My parents were wonderful, really supportive but confused because there was no history of mental illness in my family. And with the course of the next few months, I was referred to the local psychiatric services in Bradford. My first appointment was with a male psychiatrist called Pat Bracken, who I later found out had worked with men and women tortured and raped in Uganda and with child soldiers in Sierra Leone, Liberia. Child soldiers, I mean that just shows how inverse this world we live in is. Child soldiers. Anyway, it goes on. He asked me why I'd come to see him and I replied obediently. I am 18 and I am a paranoid schizophrenic. You see, because of the process she'd been through, she was convinced that she was a paranoid schizophrenic and the medication as well. And so had she been talking to a psychiatrist who was much like the other ones, that would have then probably led to being prescribed medication for being a paranoid schizophrenic. Then she would have ended up going, goodness knows where, and going through another horrible process, possibly. It goes on. Fortunately, this psychiatrist that she does see is what a psychiatrist should be, as she says. As it goes on, later on in my treatment, Pat told me he thought my answer was the saddest statement he'd ever heard from a young girl. But at the time, all he said was, tell me what you think would help you. I asked him to produce my medication. To my amazement, he agreed immediately. We talked about the voices and he suggested I stop seeing them as a symptom of mental illness and start looking on them as a way of finding out about myself. This encouraged me to tell him about my first experience of the female voice. Up until now, everyone treated me as if I was completely passive, but Pat showed me a way of helping myself to get better. Over the course of the next over the course of the next seven months, I saw Pat for regular weekly sessions, gradually reducing my medication till I stopped the drugs completely. During this time, I discovered that if I engaged with the voices, they became less frequent. I also learned to challenge the more threatening voice, refusing to do what it told me and telling myself it was no more than the symbol of my own externalized anger. One by one, the voices gradually disappeared until I was occasionally hearing. One by one, the voices gradually disappeared until I was only occasionally hearing one. Three years on, I am healthy, happy, and perfectly stable. Schizophrenia is a frightening and misleading label which stigmatizes people. While the doctors insist I was schizophrenic, I don't know if the label really applied to me. I think like many young people leaving home for the very first time, I was stressed and unhappy. Going to university and the lack of support there tipped me over the edge. All I ever did was hear voices. Now I have learned how to deal with them. I am now studying for a doctorate in clinical psychology, as well as working on a medical team that helps teenagers suffering from the sudden onset of psychosis. I often wonder what would have happened to me if I hadn't found a psychiatrist who understood how to treat me. 
If I do hear a voice now, I am no longer frightened because I understand why it's happening. My mother's signal for knowing she's stressed is an attack of migraine, minus the voices. So that's one young girl's account and how many are drugged and treated in similar ways or how many other young girls' experiences have elements of that story who go through the university system, possibly outside of it, but definitely in the university, going through that process described here. And the ending of this story is obviously very positive. And the part earlier where she was being mocked by other students, after I'd had an essay criticised by a tutor, another student leant across to me and whispered, that's finished you off, psycho. Well, obviously not, because she says, Three years on, I am healthy, happy and perfectly stable. Schizophrenia is a frightening and misleading label which stigmatises people. She's pursuing a career, she's healthy, she's happy, she's perfectly stable, and she's living a life that she wants to live. And I heard a great quote once which said, You're never finished until you tell yourself you are. And that's true. No matter what we experience, it's up to us to decide when we're finished. And the article concludes by saying, this is John Rappaport speaking now, Children, adolescents and adults have problems. Those problems arise from many different sources and they come in all shapes and sizes. Severe nutritional deficits, toxic environmental chemicals, toxins in food and drink as well. Toxic environmental chemicals, drugs, abuse at home, parents not present, poverty, bullying, hostile crime-ridden neighbourhoods, peer pressure, grossly inadequate education, etc. The translation of these problems into so-called mental disorders is scientific fakery and fraud, and the effects of the drugs given to treat these conditions are toxic and damaging. The mere diagnosis of a mental disorder sets the stage for a person to view him or herself as a victim. They cannot for bizarre alternatives such as being triggered and needing safe spaces. That's what I said earlier. In a very real sense, the entire profession of psychiatry is a mind control operation. It has invaded college campuses, it has spread across all sectors of the country and the world, it is eating societies and cultures from the inside. And as this girl's experience, when I read out the account just now, with the psychiatrist Pat, who actually did care and actually did talk to her and help her, there are some good, useful psychiatrists and psychologists, but a lot of them are just prescribing medication, as this girl found out. Another interesting article here. This is from IntelliHub.com. They've done some great articles over the years. Bombshell. One in 13 children take psychiatric drugs. This was published in 2014, May 2014. An increasing number of children in America are being labelled, diagnosed and branded. Unique personalities are being scolded and moulded by drugs to adapt childhood behaviour into societal norms. Children have become like sculptures, motionless, lifeless, psychiatric drugs chisel away at their natural state of well-being. The emotional and behavioural differences among children are yoked into compliance, to conformity. A child's struggles are not listened to or not understood. Their differences, behaviour and problems are stamped into their mind as if they are a mental illness. Psychiatric drugs are driven down the throat of young people as pharmaceutical companies expand their controlling influence. A shocking new study facilitated by the CDC's National Centre for Health Statistics reveals that 1 in 13 or 7.5% of US children are now on some type of psychiatric drug. Taking a step back, it's as if the lives of people today are controlled by a paradigm designed by drug companies. The potential of free thought is a mere speck of what it could be. The minds of a generation have been collectively hijacked in the 21st century. An alarming number of parents and medical professionals have become disillusioned in the new age of chemical quick fixes. Mind-altering drugs are now pushed onto children with little regard for their natural ability to overcome challenges. The root issues are never dealt with when a drug is issued as the one-size-fits-all band-aid. A generation ago, all these mental illnesses and ADHD labels were non-existent. Children's minds were left unaltered. They 
were never so psychotically evaluated, labelled and nitpicked like they are today. They were not subjects of a multinational psychiatric drugging machine which now possesses one-thirteenth of today's American culture. The childhood drug study based on 6-17 to 17 year olds shows another alarming trend. Boys are more likely to be prescribed psychiatric drugs than girls. 9.7% of boys are drug compared to 5.2% of girls. The increase in psychiatric diagnosis on children show that medical professionals have generally strayed away from treating people as human beings and have instead become like drug peddlers and distributors. Some. They become mindless themselves, submitting to new labels and diagnoses formulated and made into doctrine through the psychiatrist Bible, the DSM which was mentioned, of course, in the previous article. These psychiatric drugs do not teach children how to cope with challenges in life. These drugs replace discipline and perseverance with chemical alterations that harbour physical, emotional, mental and spiritual side effects. If a psychiatric drug is credited for helping change a child's behaviour or depressive state, then the child is inherently taught to be mentally and spiritually dependent on a substance to cope with life's tough realities. This drug care illusion can ultimately be cast onto every human being since behavioural differences, life challenges and brain chemical imbalances are all possible at some point in every person's life. Leaning on drugs to deal with life does not allow time with a chemically imbalanced brain to heal naturally. The brain can become dependent on the chemical alteration while fighting side effects and withdrawals. Important bodily functions like metabolism and sleep can also be adversely affected as well as illicit and natural changes in communication, violent behaviour and a lack of empathy for mankind. In the CDC report, the researchers wrote over the past two decades the use of medication to treat mental health problems has increased substantially among all school-aged children and in most subgroups of children. Why have medical professionals and parents settled for a method of labelling and drugging so disempowering and so defeated? It's definitely time to take a closer look at the over-medication epidemic going on right now in American culture. It's time to question the labels and diagnoses and the blind servitude of psychiatric medicine. And this is an interesting article on the National Institute of Mental Health website in America. Post by former NIMH director Thomas Insel. Are children ever medicated? This is June the 6th, 2014. A recent symposium at the Carter Center featured a report by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention that as many as 10,000 toddlers may be receiving psychostimulant medication like Ritalin, methylphenidate. The media reports of this, like many past reports, describe the over-medication of children. The numbers are notable. The latest estimate from the National Center for Health Statistics reports that 7.5% of U.S. children between ages 6 and 17 were taking medication for emotional or behavioral difficulties in 2011 to 2012. The CDC reports a five-fold increase in the number of children aged under 18 on psychostimulants from 1988 to 1994 to 2007 to 2010 with the most recent rate of 4.2%. The same report estimates that 1.3% of children are on antidepressants. The rate of antipsychotic prescriptions for children has increased sixfold over this same period, according to a study of office visits within a national ambulatory medical care survey. In children under age 5, psychotropic prescription rates peaked at 1.45% in 2002 to 2005 and declined to 1% from 2006 to 2009. Taken together, what do these numbers mean? A common interpretation, children with behavioural or emotional problems are being over-medicated by psychiatrists too busy to provide therapy at the request of parents too busy to provide a healthy home environment. And how many of those, it's worth asking, are prescribed of those psychiatrists are prescribing medication because they're being paid to do so by a pharmaceutical company? Worth asking. A common interpretation, children with behavioural or emotional problems are being over-medicated by psychiatrists too busy 
busy to provide therapy at the request of parents to busy to provide a healthy home environment. A corollary of this interpretation is to blame schools too busy to provide recess or activities for fidgety boys. Recess, what we would call playtime in Britain. And usually the blame extends to the pharmaceutical companies that market medications in pursuit of profits. While blaming psychiatrists, parents, schools or drug companies might seem legitimate, some of the facts just don't fit. First, most of the prescriptions for stimulant drugs and antidepressants are not from psychiatrists. In fact, outside of a few major cities, families in much of the nation have very limited access to child psychiatrists. Blaming parents is easy, but as Judith Warner argues in her book, We've Got Issues, most parents resist medication rather than request it. Schools in many parts of America have reduced unstructured time, but the increase in medication is now seen in toddlers years before children begin school. And drug companies, while frequently maligned, have reduced, not increased their marketing budgets in the US. By the way, we should also not think that this doesn't happen in Britain and other countries. The article continues, if psychiatrists, parents, schools or drug companies are not the culprit, who is? The answer is potentially more complicated and more worrisome. Is it possible that the increased use of medication is not the problem but a symptom? What if more children were struggling with severe psychiatric problems and actually the problem was not over-treatment but increased need? Surely if we discovered more children were being treated for diabetes or immune problems, we would not blame the providers or the parents. We'd be asking what drives the increase in incidence and actually are large increases in incidence of type 1 diabetes and food allergies. Good question. As I said at the start, what is causing the increased anxiety and depression among kids? Skepticism regarding increased rates of emotional and behavioural difficulties as opposed to increases in other medical disorders can be attributed in part to the absence of biomarkers or laboratory tests for psychiatric diagnosis, comparable to glucose tolerance tests for diabetes or anaphylactic reactions for allergies. Absent these kinds of consistent objective measures for mental disorders, we cannot distinguish between a true increase in the number of children affected or simply changing values or trends in diagnosis. Clearly, context matters. Context always matters, and that's what the mainstream media misses all the time. What one parent might consider hyperactivity, another parent might consider healthy exuberance. What physicians once called attention deficit hyperactivity disorder often now elicits a diagnosis of childhood bipolar disorder. Same traits diagnosed differently leading to a 40-fold increase in prevalence from 1994 to 1995 to 2002 to 2003. No question, in a field without biomarkers, there is a risk of overdiagnosis. That's exactly what that article I read, first of all, said from John Rappaport. No question, subjective diagnosis can invite unnecessary treatment and over-medication. But what if the increased use of medication reflected more children with severe developmental problems and more families in crisis? What if the bigger problem is not over-medication but under-treatment? Because medication and treatment are not necessarily the same thing. Hearing that 7.5% of children are on medication, 4.2%, in fact, a lot of the time they're not the same thing. Hearing that 7.5% of children are on medication, 4.2% on psychostimulants seems stunning, but knowing that 11% of children have a diagnosis of ADHD raises a possibility of under-treatment. Well, yes, but as I said earlier, a lot of what's called ADHD is merely boredom and a response to boredom. Anyway, the article continues. In fact, evidence from nationally representative surveys of youth in the U.S. challenges recent concerns regarding widespread over-medication and misuse of medications, at least in adolescence. Among those with current mental disorders, only 14.2% of youth reported psychotropic medication use, and the majority who had been prescribed medications had a mental disorder with severe consequences, functional impairment, suicidality or associated behavioural or developmental difficulties. In light of the evidence that about 1 in every 12 the U- 1 in every 12 
now. Youths suffer from a severe developmental, behavioural or emotional disorder. Undertreatment remains a serious problem. That's the figure now. At some point, surely people have to realise that it's not on the scale that we're seeing it, a natural occurrence. Because if it was, there would not be figures like that. So what's causing it? I've talked before about epigenetics, which is a relatively new field of study. It's been around for a while, but relatively new, which says basically that changes in the genetics, changes personality, changes in state mentally, etc. of the parent, the mother, can be passed on to the next generation. And that will be one of the reasons why. And, and of course all the toxicity and radiation, not least from technology, wireless technology around us is affecting the DNA and affecting health, affecting perception, etc. Toxicity in food and drink and toxicity in other ways. I've talked about the scale of toxicity in episode 25. Goes on. Of course the problem may be both over-treatment and under-treatment. It is possible that children with issues that will be resolved by psychotherapy alone and receiving medication. It seems very likely, given the data in adolescence, that many who would benefit from medication and psychotherapy are receiving neither intervention. It is also worth considering that the rates of child and mental disorders can be stable, but that more children are getting the treatment they need, and for many, detection and intervention is at an early age. If it is your child suffering acutely from anxiety, autism, anorexia, or depression, the problem is certainly not over-treatment. The CDC reports show that parents in more than one half of those children are used to prescribe medication for emotional or behavioural difficulties it reported that this medication helped the child a lot what i hear from families in crisis is lack of access poor quality care and a desperate need for access in the media reports on over medicating children this perspective is missing the possibility that there is a the possibility that there is a real increase in the number of children suffering with severe emotional problems just as there is a real increase in the number of children with diabetes and food allergies is not even considered shouldn't we be asking why so many children at younger ages are being seen for emotional and behavioral problems absolutely we should and that is exactly what i've said Why the sudden support for people suffering from mental health? A stream of celebrities are talking about it suddenly, which is always a red flag, I find. When a load of celebrities suddenly start talking about something out of nowhere, a lot of the time that's the agenda. When something comes out of nowhere and it's suddenly everywhere, you need to ask why, because there's usually a coordination behind it. What if the goal is to encourage people to think about their mental health, even if they don't have a problem? To encourage more people to seek help, which in many cases will lead to medication being prescribed by psychiatrists. And there's even now, right on cue, discussion about whether psychologists should also be allowed to prescribe medication. What if that's where all this is leading? I think there's a very good chance. I This whole thing about anxiety, and that's the big one, that's the one that seems to be talked about most and other mental health problems from the beginning when I saw it suddenly getting a lot more support it didn't feel right to me 
I didn't know why, but I couldn't sync with it. And like I say, what if it's all leading to... I mean, it's great that people should get support, and I'm not against that. Just as I'm not against transgender people getting support who feel they're in the wrong body, and they feel they they are well, now want to identify as transgender or want to transition. Those people should get all the support they need. But there's an agenda here. And it's the same with this. Transgender more or less came out of nowhere in the last few years or so. And it's now everywhere. How many times was transgender talked about 20 years ago? 25 years ago? 30 years ago? Look at it now. I think there's a very good chance this whole focus on mental health is the same. All these celebrities suddenly talking about anxiety hardly happened 20 years ago, 30 years ago. Why now? And Aldous Huxley talked about enforced medication when he said, There will be, in the next generation or so, a pharmacological method of making people love their servitude and producing dictatorship without tears, so to speak, producing a kind of painless concentration camp for entire society so that people will in fact have their liberties taken away from them but will rather enjoy it. We are living in a chemical, toxic environment. Schools and mental health clinics should be totally separate concepts. Kids go to school to learn not to be treated for mental health issues, just as they don't go to school to be vaccinated. That should take place within a doctor's surgery only. If at all, I don't think it should happen at all, but if it's going to, then the doctor's is the place for that, not the school. If people want to destroy their kid's immune system for life by taking them to the doctor's to be vaccinated, then that's their choice, but it should happen in the doctor's. We need a comprehensive review, not of mental health support in schools, because mental health support, especially on the scale the article talks about, should not be in schools, but of kids and young people's lives. Encouraging them to open up and realise it's okay to talk about their problems is useless unless we address the causes of the problem. Because otherwise the problem is just going to continue. The answer to the situation is not drugs and it's not counselling in many cases, for reasons I've explained. But addressing and removing these causes, and when the cause of a problem is addressed, the problem is resolved because nothing is causing it anymore. The more people you can convince that maybe they do have a mental health problem, a lot more of them are going to believe they do, and what comes from that, as I've said. But there's two ways to deal with the problem. There's to find a solution to it, which is not really that great because the, pro- because the cause is still there, or you can remove the cause of the problem. And removing the cause of the problem is addressing the causes of the problem in society, which I talk about in episode 38. And usually removing the cause of the problem is a lot harder, or it seemed to be a lot harder, which is why most people go for a solution instead, most of the time. If we do, then we'll see a very different situation. And the next subject this week is transgender. This is in the Daily Mail. Speaking out about transgender extremists has made me the most hated man on the internet, writes Father Ted creator Graham Linehan. And he says, Today I am one of the most loathed figures on the internet. My speaking events have been cancelled. I have been sued. Police have visited my home and former friends have turned their backs on me. Yet I'm the man who wrote the much-loved Father Ted. Why is it that I've become so suddenly unpopular? The thought crime for which I've been tried and found guilty is that I believe 
biological reality exists. I believe women are females. I believe everyone should be able to present themselves as they wish, but the women's hard-won rights must not be compromised for the benefit of men suffering body dysphoria, which is to say many feel they're stuck in the wrong body. Most of all, I believe that gender ideology in its currently fashionable form is dangerous, incoherent nonsense. Or some of it is nonsense. Some of it's just invented out of thin air. I mean, the number of genders now is just increasing all the time. And some of the descriptions of these genders are ridiculous. I mean, one of them is to do with space. I don't remember exactly the details, but I remember reading them. One of them is to do with space. I mean, what has that got to do with gender? The article continues. I believe trans people, those unfortunate enough to suffer body dysphoria, are having their condition exploited and trivialized by abusive, controlling, and authoritarian trans rights activists. And I think women and children are suffering because of it. Absolutely correct. The transgender activists don't care about transgender. They claim to stand for transgender people. But if you're a transgender person and you've transitioned and you speak out to give advice to people and to say, don't be so quick to rush into it because I've transitioned and I have regretted it, then the transgender lobby will attack you even more fiercely than non-transgender people because it's about pushing an agenda. And those pushing it in the transgender lobby will have no idea of the fact that the cult actually has the same agenda and that's why those activists and lobbyists are being given the prominence they are the article continues worst of all i say so loudly this makes me public enemy number one i make my arguments forcefully because i'm concerned sometimes with humor because i'm a comedy writer and often while cursing because i'm irish it's the humor they hate the most it's kryptonite to these activists political correctness doesn't do humor these activists don't do humor and that's an expression of their mental illness, really. I'm 51, and I've never seen anything like the authoritarianism on display, the desperate desire to shut down the conversation. No genuine civil rights movement advances in secret, but this one is, as one of its mantras, no debate. Yeah, they don't debate, because they can't debate, because they know they'd lose with anyone who's in any way intelligent and especially informed about the reality of all this. So while we are in a world where male sexual offenders in a in bad wings assault female prisoners, where rape crisis centres are defunded because they won't admit men, and where a guy on a full beard tells school children that he's a lesbian. We're informed with venomous aggression that we may not talk about any of it. No debate? Oh, there's going to be a debate, alright. The popular opinion among my detractors is that I'm cherry-picking negative stories to mask a hatred of trans people. In fact, I first came to this debate because I saw women being bullied. In fact, I first came to this debate because I saw women being bullied, losing their jobs, and suffering the most intense online harassment I'd ever seen, and I wanted to stand beside them. Also, as a writer, I couldn't watch one of the most important words in the English language, the word woman, being changed against the will of those whom it defined. Suddenly, everywhere you looked, women were being erased, insulted, or in endangered, amnesty referring to pregnant women as pregnant people, production of the vagina monologues closing because they excluded women who don't have vaginas, women's toilets disappearing from public life even though they were introduced to ensure that women could have a public life, worst of all I saw the lack of compassion or empathy for the vulnerable women who are often at the sharp end of the new gender theocracy. The change in language from pregnant women to pregnant people is all part of this agenda to fuse gender and in so doing, eventually erase the concept of gender. That's where this is all going, as I've talked about before. Worst of all, I saw the lack of compassion or empathy for the vulnerable women who are often at the sharp end of the new gender theocracy. The four women attacked in prison by a male sex offender in 2018, who everyone had to call Karen or they were committing a hate crime, are four women too many. 
Women in prison often have a history of abuse at the hands of men. Whatever they've done, they are entitled to safety from the type of men who help put them there. Rational people, and that includes rational trans people, are dismayed by those who have now taken over trans activism. While it excludes the transgender lobby and activists. Body dysphoria is no longer seen as central or even necessary for those who decide to adopt a so-called trans identity. To see just how elastic and meaningless the word trans has become. It's become meaningless because it's become so elastic. On purpose. One only has to look at the definition adopted by the Stonewall Lobby Group. Trans people may describe themselves using one or more of a wide variety of terms including but not limited to. Oh, definitely not limited to. Goodness me. Transgender, transsexual, gender queer, gender fluid, non-binary, gender variant, cross-dresser, genderless, and agender. Agender, and that's very close to the truth. Non-gender, third gender, bi-gender, trans man, trans woman, trans masculine, trans feminine, neutral. And that's only a tiny fraction of the list of words. And this LGBT, as I've said before, that keeps on getting longer. And... There's 26 letters in the alphabet. You can use them as many times as you like. I mean, as, as one person said in a, a book I've read, are we talking about gender here or a game of Scrabble? Neutral, I discovered, literally just means androgynous. So why not just call it that then? So androgynous people are transgender. That would be news to Bake Off presenter Noel Fielding. Under Stonewall's definition, everyone is transgender and no one is. No one is because the idea is to get rid of gender. A cross-dresser such as banker Philip Bunce, who adopts the female persona Pippa for only a few days a week, nevertheless receives the honour of being named by the Financial Times as one of its top 100 women in business. This was seen as progress, a step forward for women. In fact, it is an insult to women to those suffering from body dysphoria. In order to maintain the fantasy that our sex is unconnected to our bodies, the truth must be bent and beaten in the fire of academic language. That is why trans activists talk about sex being assigned at birth in abusive language if ever I heard one. Assigned. That's the way they've hijacked the idea of gender assigned when it's actually a biological fact is the sex of a newborn assigned by a capricious midwife of course not rather it is observed and recorded as a matter of fact is that what, what i've just said assigned is one of the more successful hijackings of english achieved by gender ideologues you will hear it parroted across many organizations from the nhs to the bbc the sort of institution where you really would expect people to know better but not really because if anyone's going to be woke and PC, it's a BBC. I mean, look at Doctor Who. So, no organisation is going to not adhere to these rules because they're terrified of the consequences for their image if they don't. Same with a lot of celebrities, by the way. Before I knew how toxic transgender rights activism was, I wrote an episode of my Channel 4 sitcom The IT Crowd with a transgender character. The response was more venomous than I was used to, but as bad as it was, at least I was allowed to write it. That was in 2013. In 2020, such an episode would never air. And that is because the first generation who didn't go out to play have grown up to become clones of Mary Whitehouse, the new Puritans. I'm not new to outrage. There was fury on the part of some when we first released Father Ted, but the executives we had were made of strong stuff and ignored the attacks. The same goes for the IT crowd, brass eye black boots, and I guess a few companies I've not worked on. I'm worried we're entering an era of pre-chewed prissy art that offends no one. Entering, you've been there for a while. But it's not comedy writers who were the victims of all this, and it's women who were the real casualties. Well, it is destroying comedy. But not everyone. Not every comedian. Gender ideology is a disaster for women. They are expected to make room for men in their changing rooms and their safe spaces. 
They are being robbed of the language to describe their reality by unintelligible academic gender experts, by teenagers encouraging each other online, by parents who are profoundly mistaken, and by well-meaning people who, confused by the ever-changing terminology, still believe they are defending what used to be called transsexuals. All these forces working together are, whether they know it or not, whether they know it or not being the key part of that sentence, providing a smokescreen for fetishists, con men and misogynists to pursue their own agenda. On one level it's their own agenda, but it's also the cult's agenda, for reasons they will not have any idea. In years to come we will look back at this scandal, at the ruined bodies, the confused crime statistics, the weakening of safeguarding and the rollback of women's rights and wonder how it was left to go on for so long, because it's an agenda and therefore there is a global coordination of it through different areas of society and different organisations and the terrifying of people in the public eye and organisations to or not to speak out against it and celebrities that's how it's done coordination and intimidation and those who really respect transgender people and people thinking of transitioning and the future of humanity in general and that's not an exaggeration when I say that because this connects in, as I said before, to the technology agenda, which I talk about in episodes 10 and 11. And I've talked about transgender before in episodes 8, 16, 32, and 61. People who really care about transgender people and activists who really care will acknowledge those who have transitioned and regretted it and given them the platform and not care about pushing the agenda care about the people they claim to represent and if people care about freedom and they care about ensuring that kids are not continually facing transgender propaganda in school and elsewhere and kids are allowed to grow up and decide for themselves what their gender is and are allowed to have a childhood without having to think about gender when they shouldn't be thinking about it as kids then they will say what needs saying they will speak out about it whatever the consequence because if we don't then this agenda is going to unfold Another transgender story. This is in the Daily Mail. Mother of two accused of calling a transgender woman a man in a racist and offensive tweet tells court she is playing the victim card to stop people disagreeing with her. A mother of two who allegedly called a transgender woman a man and a racist today said her accuser plays the victim card to stop people disagreeing with her. Kate Scottow, 39, is on trial at St. Albans Magistrates Court for allegedly posting offensive tweets against Stephanie Hayden, who was transgender. Well, there's only one person who decides whether something's offensive, and that's the person to whom the comment or comments are directed towards. Scottow was arrested at her home in Hitchin, Herefordshire, on December the 1st, 2018, in front of her then 10-year-old daughter and 20-month-old son. Today, defence lawyer Diana Wilson asked her client he believed that she, Miss Hayden, plays the victim card to stop people disagreeing with her. Scottow replied, I believe that she does that regularly and I feel it is unjust. Also today, Miss Hayden said she has been involved in a fair few legal cases while being cross-examined by Miss Wilson. The defence lawyer said Miss Hayden had been involved in three legal battles in a week. Miss Hayden had complained Scottow referred to her as he or him during a period of significant online abuse. The defendant is currently on trial for allegedly using a public communications network to cause annoyance, inconvenience and anxiety to Miss Hayden between September 2018 and May 2019. During cross-examination of Miss Hayden today, defence lawyer Diana Wilson said Miss Hayden had been involved in three legal cases in a week. When asked how many she was involved in, Miss Hayden said, I am a litigious. I put my hands up. I use the law if I feel I have to use the law. 
That is why I have got as a citizen of this country. I cannot tell you how many because, quite frankly, there have been a fair few. Miss Wilson told the court the claimant had a previous conviction relating to an affray with a golf club in 1999. She said Miss Hayden had been before criminal courts on 11 occasions for 21 offences and had spent six months in prison for obtaining property deception. But Miss Hayden noted all the convictions were spent in her last court appearance was 10 years ago. She said she had been convicted of petty crimes like handing in a bad cheque at a petrol station and railway fraud. Addressing the golf club affray, Miss Hayden said, I do not care about that conviction. I know what happened that day in 1999. It is long spent. It is just, just tattletale brought up really to smear me. That was not known to anybody at all until it was leaked to Mum's net around the time of these offences. Miss Hayden also faced questions over a tweet she had written which Scott out claimed was racist. Miss Wilson told the court part of the tweet said, Not so long ago, people like you had no civil rights, yet you... The full message was not available as Miss Hayden has allegedly deleted it, but Miss Wilson claimed Miss Hayden had sent it to another Twitter user who was black. Miss Hayden said from the witness box, I am not racist at all. In fact, I object to the use of that term. One of the closest figures in this will sound a cliche in my life is mixed race. Miss Wilson asked her if one of her best friends was black. Miss Hayden said, I do not know if the person was black. This was a person who was purporting to be black. What this person had been doing contacting transgender people like myself to give harassment and abuse it was an ill-judged choice of words i fully accept that and that is why it was deleted she added the fact is black people whether it be in south africa in the usa do not have civil rights and what i was trying to say was here is somebody from a group who did not have civil rights now coming at people like me and abusing and harassing me. the court heard how after scott how accused her of racism miss hayden contacted a staff member at the defendant's university to raise concerns the defendant had allegedly been using three different twitter accounts to contact miss hayden the court heard. A tweet allegedly made about Miss Hayden from one of these Twitter accounts said, Why do you people keep trying to punish others who disagree with you? Miss Hayden told the court, I took the view that whoever it was was trying to engage me in a conversation. I must confess I entertained the conversation for a few tweets. At the time I am engaging with this account, I have not got a clue that this is defendant. At the time I am engaging with this account, I have not got a clue that this is the defendant. It is only after the interaction that the suspicion is formed and I make my research. I just considered this person to be a troll on a fishing expedition. I would not have believed that the defendant, who at that stage had been arrested, would be stupid enough to try to contact me. Scottow, who was studying a master's degree in forensic psychology, previously signed a settlement agreement preventing her from contacting or referring to Miss Hayden online. The court heard the defendant sign this, but Miss Hayden claimed she had continued messaging her. Miss Hayden said, I contacted the defendant by email on November the 10th, 2018. I explained what my position is. I have taken screenshots and I am now going to police, which is what I did. The defendant then replied to me, Hayden, as per the signed agreement, I have not breached any of the clauses. The tweets do not support your claims here. If you continue harassment of me, I will be forced to report you to the police, of which I have personal contacts who have already advised me to seek their help if you continue your harassment and allegations. Miss Hayden told the court, I did not like that one bit. Scott Howe has also been accused of revealing on social media Miss Hayden received personal independent payment, a benefit she was entitled to because she suffered from memory loss. Mr. Wilson said to the complainant, many people take the view that you cannot change your sex and that is one of the things described on this Mumsnet forum and that is a view they are entitled to hold in the state. Miss Hayden replied, it is one thing to take a very legitimate point of view that trans women are not women or that your sex cannot be changed, that is one thing. What is not acceptable is to contact individual transgender people who post their photographs online, mocking the way they look, dead naming them. Miss Wilson said, the truth of the matter is this prosecution is about the shutting down of women expressing their views. Miss Hayden replied, what I take issue with is people who think it is open season on people like me to publish the fact that I claim a known means-tested benefit for disability. The defendant, as I understand it, has just graduated. She is an intelligent woman. She is entitled to reviews. What she is not entitled to 
do is contact me from multiple accounts, revealing to the world that I claim PIP or engage in playground politics to harass and abuse me. Also today, Scotta, who described herself as a radical feminist, told the court how she had been held in a police cell for seven hours before going through an hour-long interview. The stay-at-home mother said her children had been present when she was arrested in her kitchen. Giving evidence during her trial, Scotta said that she had been presented with a diagnosis of anxiety depressive disorder after the birth of her son. She had also been lactating and menstruating when she was brought to Hatfield Police Station. Scotta said, I was very stressed and I was pacing, crying. The closer it got to my son's dinner time, usually about five, I started to get quite bad. I'm very much a bravado sort of person. I hate crying in public. I do not even like being touched. I tend to be very stoic. The court heard how Scott had been brought into a police interview where she had declined to have legal representation. Reading from a transcript to the interview, the court was told Scott Howard told officers. Reading from a transcript to the interview, the court was told Scott Howard told officers. I again got irate and posted to Miss Hayden saying, I am surprised you can remember given you are claiming PIP for memory, which is I know immature and nasty. I will admit that, but I felt her conduct was so threatening and nasty and I know that two wrongs do not make a right. I knew it would get to Stephanie. I think it was not a nice thing to do, but it's something I did. I think it's because I felt I was harassed. I was feeling I was bullied. I reacted in an immature and petty way. I made an error, absolutely, but I do not think it amounts to harassment. During the interview, Scotta had referred to Miss Hayden as a he, and police officers had corrected her, after which she apologised, the court was told. Prosecuting, John Riley said the police interview showed Scotta had contacted Miss Hayden with the purpose of annoying her. Cross-examining the defendant, Mr Riley said that pretty much sums up what you did throughout the entirety of this communication. You cannot possibly have thought anything other than what you said out honestly to the officers. You knew throughout the whole process that what you were doing was to cause upset, to cause perhaps an emotional reaction. You were determined, weren't you, to carry on. You could not leave it, could you? You could not just drop it and stop your communication with Stephanie Hayden. Scott had denied she had intended to cause upset, saying instead that she had been seeking out the truth and had acted out of anger with no clear purpose in her mind. Medics had previously suggested Scott how she might present as aspergic, she told the court, though she had not yet been diagnosed because she was worried about the impact it might have on the career she wanted to pursue as a forensic psychologist. Scott had told the court, part of my being possibly Asperger's is I'm not very good at social interaction, I'm not very good at reading a room or people. I'm very black and white, I panic in open spaces, I do not like loud noises, I believe very much in right and wrong and it's quite hard to persuade me. I speak out about things such as men and women cannot change sex, I speak out about injustice and racism is one of my big bugbears to speak the truth, to expose racism is what it is, bad and unjust. The public gallery full of family and friends who turned out to support Scott and listened as she continued her evidence and claimed she had not been intending to cause annoyance or upset when she contacted Miss Hayden, the trial continues. Well, this is another story, yet again, of authority favouring victims and minorities. I talked in episodes 13 and 15 about the PC pyramid hierarchy, which dictates how people will be treated depending on their position in the hierarchy. And the more of a minority you are, and the more potential for being a victim, the higher in the hierarchy you are, and the more protection you get. White people are at the bottom, unless you are a transgender white person, for example and you're higher in the hierarchy, but white people in general get no protection. If the gang raping in Rotherham, for example, which I talk about in episode 27, was white people abusing Asian and Muslim girls, as opposed to the opposite, the authorities would have been on it immediately, rather than doing nothing, which in many cases is what happens, because police would rather be politically correct, rather than correct. People who constantly perceive themselves to be a victim, will live a victim life, because without going into the metaphysical explanation for this. What you perceive, you have a very good chance of experiencing, to keep it real simple. Perceiving victimhood also means we are externalizing responsibility for our experience and therefore giving the power to change it away rather than taking it back and realizing that we create our experience so we can decide our own experience. 
we can only change if we're prepared to honestly look at ourselves. While we perceive ourselves to be a victim, we stop the evaluation process because we perceive our circumstances are not due to ourselves, but someone or something else. Playing victims, which in many cases people are not, they're just choosing to be offended and competing with each other by playing the victim card like the woman in this article or the race card or whatever leads to tyranny for all because if we allow ourselves to be we will all be victims of the cult's agenda which doesn't care what label you identify with it wants to enslave and control all of us so coming together and meeting each other as people which is the one thing we all have in common is the answer and the next subject this week is smart technology obviously something i've talked a lot about on pay-per-view and this is in the daily mail smart motorways smart phones smart homes why are they all so dumb we live in the age of smart things smartphones smart motorways smart homes smart meters smart cars smart tvs and that's only a fraction of the number of smart technology but anyway the article says we live in the age of smart things smartphones smart motorways homes meters cars tvs and yet have you noticed how almost anything that carries the prefix smart somehow ends up being anything but take so-called smart motorways stupidest idea since diet water quite where it came from was unclear but the fact remains that a few years ago all the motorways that used to work perfectly okay give or take the old traffic jam started becoming nigh on impassable with no discernible warning or obvious justification some satanic sub-department of highways england that might not be too far from the truth, actually, that. Decided that all our dim-witted old motorways had to be upgraded to shiny new smart ones, meaning that all of a sudden a journey that might have taken an hour took at least twice that because of all the roadworks. And when they were finished, the new smart motorways had no hard shoulders, meaning broken-down cars had nowhere safe to wait. 38 people have been killed on smart motorways in the past five years. I've talked about smart motorways in episode 59. No one bothered to ask us, the motorists, what we thought of this idea, probably because it would have been met with a resounding boot. That's exactly why. But dumb motorways are typical of all this new smartness that seems to be coming our way. Typical in the way that they render a tried and tested system stupidly complex for no other purpose than to make the lives of nosy government departments and big business easier. Oh, I think there's more to it than that. It's not about making anything easier. It's about building a technological sub-reality to entice and entrap human awareness completely within its bounds. As I explain in pay-per-view in print where I talk at length about this technological agenda and where it's really leading which is far beyond even where some people who are aware of it think it's leading. The article continues. In the case of the poor beleaguered motorists, the long-term strategy behind smart motorways is to facilitate the introduction of driverless or you guessed it smart cars whose every move will be tracked by a central database. Ostensibly this will lead to fewer accidents and safer more fuel efficient travelling. But you and I know it will just mean even more delay and frustration. In the meantime, the authorities will be able to track where we go, while the big data firms will be able to harvest even more details about our lives to use for whatever nefarious means they see fit. Ditto smartphones, so clever in fact that they make us do stupid things like step out in front of a car while texting or walk into a lamppost while chatting on FaceTime. Well, driverless vehicles are not only about tracking movement, but also controlling movement and dictating where people can go and even if they can go anywhere. Anything smart is designed to be connected to everything else smart to create one network, in the end a global network, and this will be connected to the ever-increasing surveillance in society, including through Silicon Valley, to create this unbreachable, all-encompassing network of total control and surveillance, as I explain in detail in pay-per-view in print. And the idea is to get rid of private travel, people owning their own cars and vehicles, and replace it with driverless cars, so 
if you're not allowed to go anywhere, you don't go anywhere. And smartphones and technology in general is rewiring kids' brains, adults as well, but especially kids, because obviously their brains are more moldable. And I explain how this is actually being done in pay-per-view in print. Smartphones are the first stage for many along this road to technological control. The article continues. Before all this smart tech entered our lives, before we allowed our fridges to tell us what to eat, and even in the end, if we can eat, and our radios what to listen to and our TVs what to watch, smart TVs, before we surrendered all autonomy to the gods of smart things, the gods of smart things, that's not too far from the truth, I can tell you that, human beings were already pretty damn smart. We wrote books and poetry, created breathtaking works of art, built palaces and temples that still stand to this day, sailed oceans and conquered space. I'm not for one second suggesting that technology has not made our lives much easier in many ways, simply that the smarter the tech gets, the stupider we humans seem to become. I don't see how anyone could consider that progress. Well, we live in a world of increasing technology, and while technology has allowed for advancement in practically every area of society, with many great things it allows us to do and the new doors it has opened to possibility, it also has a very sinister end. And either we address not only this sinister end, but the problems caused, especially for kids and young people, by technology now, or we're going to seriously regret it in the very near future. And beyond that, even humanity, especially human awareness will not have a future because it will be totally encompassed by artificial intelligence. The choice is with us. And the final subject this week is electric cars. This is in the Daily Mail. The government's eco-edit that all new cars be electric in 15 years is doomed to backfire because old bangers could be greener, says John Nash. For those readers left scratching their heads over the government's ban on sales of all new petrol, diesel and hybrid cars in 2035, here's what I, a former Fleet Street motoring editor, will be doing to help save the planet. Our family car, a VW Golf, has at least a decade left in its petrol engine. Good care and servicing should stretch that to 2033. Then I'll buy the very latest technology petrol and diesel car just before the pre-ban sales scramble cause prices to spiral. Why? Because I'm convinced it is the greenest thing to do all round. The government's attempt to meet its near-zero carbon target by bringing forward by five years its ban on petrol, diesel and hybrid cars is well-intentioned. Pointless, more accurately, yet it is doomed to backfire as badly as a Model T Ford. We all know well from the great diesel debacle what happens when politicians grab the steering wheel on eco-policy. Even worse when they grab the steering wheel on eco-policy to justify changing society in the way that the lie of human caused climate change, which I talk about in episodes 18 and 29, and massively in the pay-per-view book, pay-per-view in print, which will be available soon, is designed to justify a massive transformation of human society. Anyway, the article continues. Back in 2001, the then-Chancellor Gordon Brown slashed road tax and fuel duty on diesel cars because some boffin in a white coat had told him they emit 15% less CO2 greenhouse gas carbon dioxide than petrol cars. Sales rocketed as eco-minded drivers rushed to buy, but then some other boffins discovered diesel spewed out vastly more damaging nitrogen oxide and nitrogen dioxide than petrol cars. What's more, their exhausts sent asthma and heart disease rates soaring. Think depopulation agenda. So punishing new taxes got slapped on diesels. Its costs spiralled and resale prices plummeted. Those well-meaning motorists got taken to the cleaners. Now we are experiencing the great electric car push and that is set to be still more of a shocker, both for people and the planet. At a local level, we require massive amounts of new infrastructure to be built to support electric cars. We will need at least 25 million new roadside charging points, the equivalent of installing 4,000 new ones a day, starting yesterday, with roads and pavements having to be ripped up in the process, which will, of course, create plumes of emissions. 
emissions. Where on earth will the electricity need to come from? More than a third of Britain's commute by car. Imagine in 2035 and beyond, each of those motorists arriving home at night and hurriedly plugging in their vehicles at around the same time. Malcolm McCulloch, head of Oxford University's Energy and Power Group, has warned that the national grid will need another 20 gigawatts of generating capacity, double the amount currently generated by all the UK's nuclear power stations to cope. The Engineer magazine says that charging an electric car at home with a medium-speed charger is like leaving the electric shower on all night. If just a few people in the street decided to do that, it'd blow the local distribution fuse. The article continues, Indeed, the whole system may fail. Off-gen, Britain's energy regulator thanks thinks this could be solved by making motorists pay more for peak rate recharging. This would create a two-tier system in which lower earning commuters will be penalised and effectively taxed out of work. The government's electric car dream wantonly ignores the other rapidly growing demands in our supply of clean electricity, including Ofgem's new drive to stop us using gas to heat our homes and to use electric instead. On top of this is our ever-spiralling use of internet streaming, downloading, phoning and texting. By 2025, it is predicted that the server farm storing digital data from billions of devices will be using 20% of all the world's electricity. So we're going to need a lot more juice or face regular blackouts such as the one last August that caused rush hour chaos across the UK's biggest train stations. Railways, roads and airports left almost a million homes in the dark after two major generator outages. The economic impact will be greater still if a third of Britain's workforce can make it to work the next morning. Think Hunger Games Society which I talk about in episode 4. We can't rely on wind farms or solar power to meet such needs. We don't have the technology to store large amounts of electricity, so it has to be generated on demand. More power stations powered by fossil fuels or nuclear fission thus appear the only answer, at least for the moment. Another problem threatens to crash the electric party, sourcing the metals needed to make the car batteries. Some experts fear that the planet's available reserves of lithium are insufficient to make enough lithium-ion batteries to replace all of our petrol-driven vehicles. Others say that the cobalt needed comes from the Democratic Republic of Congo, infamous for its use of child labour and human rights abuses. Well, you know, this whole thing can be solved by realising that fossil fuels, not saying that their emissions are great to breathe in, but at the same time, they're not causing climate change. Most worrying of all is the need for rare earth metals such as neodymium. Neodymium. Essential for manufacturing the magnets that make electric car motors run. Mining neodymium releases such vast amounts of radioactive contamination and other murderous toxins such as sulfuric acid that only one nation allows it, China. China controls about 80% of the global market for rare earth metals and their export is tightly controlled. Neodymium, just for those curious, is said to be a hard, slightly malleable silvery metal that quickly tarnishes in air and moisture. When oxidised, neodymium, in other words, exposed to oxygen, neodymium reacts quickly to produce pink purple blue and yellow compounds just in case you're wondering china i said a couple of episodes ago that the reason greater thunberg who goes of course all over the place lecturing on the fact that humans are destroying the planet when they're not in terms of contributing to climate there are a lot of things we're doing to the environment and if they got the attention that climate change is getting the environment would be a lot better than it is but humans are not destroying the environment in terms of climate change greater thunberg however has never gone to china because because china in many ways today is the blueprint for the west tomorrow as i talk about in episode 63 the article continues Oil gave Arab nations power over the West for most of the 20th century. Today, neodymium may give China a similar energy weapon. Already, the Chinese government is threatening to restrict supplies of retaliation against US tariffs. Some may feel that risking a trade war may be a fair price to pay for greener motoring, but swapping our petrol cars for electric ones is not guaranteed to deliver that for all the reasons outlined above. What's even more shocking are the figures I unearthed when our smug middle-class hippie neighbours began bragging about how green they'd been by trading their year-old petrol car for a new hybrid. Why do some people have to compete with each other? I think it's quite sad, honestly, to live your life like that. 
to constantly wanting to outdo each other, or at least one person wanting to be better or have done things that someone else has done. Um, and it's almost a certain route to disappointment in the end. And to and if you value things or success, whatever, however you define that, more than people, then you're putting your value in things that have no value, really, especially compared with people. And that can end in loneliness or whatever. And and while we're divided and while we're competing with each other and divided from each other, we will be ruled together. We need to come together because divide and rule only works when people are divided. When we come together, the cult's agenda is over. Article continues. I discovered that manufacturing an average car generates more than 17 tons of CO2. That's almost the amount generated by gas and electricity use every three years in a typical UK home. That's why it's often better to keep your old banger on the road than to upgrade to a greener model, according to the Guardian newspaper's Green Living Block. Well, CO2 ain't causing climate change. Nothing on earth is causing climate change, which might give you a clue as to what is causing it, as I explain in detail in pay-per-view in print. The article continues, the situation is even worse with electric cars. A Swedish government report says that making the battery alone releases as much CO2 as eight years worth of driving a petrol vehicle. So to return to my opening point, all we need to do to make a green difference, nothing in terms of climate change, but I'm not saying there are not things that could be done to mitigate the effects, but not on the scale of what's being suggested and not to avoid causing it because we're not causing it. The article goes on. So to return to my opening point, all we need to do to make a green difference is use our existing cars sparingly and keep them going for longer. Of course, that doesn't suit the car-making lobbyists who sit at the government's ear. They want us to keep buying new ones. Come 2033, when I'm finally in the market for a new car, I predict that technological advances will have made fossil fuel engine motors significantly cleaner. The signs are already there in the technical journals. One of the most promising developments is in the world of Wait for it. Cleaner diesel engines with far fewer emissions. You couldn't make it up. But actually, that's what the government is doing with its greener motoring policies. And actually, that's what different areas of society are doing. Government organisations like the United Nations, corporations, climate change activists, etc. are doing. Making up the claim and the nonsense about not only the claim that humans are causing climate change, but even the scale of it is being massively overplayed, as I, again, detail in pay-per-view in print. Well, the cult's agenda, as I've said before, is to get rid of private travel and replace it with electric cars, which obviously don't travel as far on one charge as regular cars, and driverless cars, which I talk about in episodes 6 and 34. Plan, as the article says, is for electric cars to be more commonplace by the 2030s. And again, the 2030s are mentioned all over the place. They're mentioned by Greta Thunberg and the Extinction Rebellion movement in relation to the timeline to save the planet, which humans are not destroying in terms of climate change. And human-caused climate change is the justification for the United Nations Agenda 21, which I talk about in episode 15, as well as other episodes. I talk about Uber in that episode as well. It kind of plays into all this. And the offshoot of Agenda 21, Agenda 2030, I talk about that in episode 36. And climate change is part of Agenda 2030 in terms of taking action to deal with it. In other words, imposing the cult's agenda under the guise of saving the planet. And then there's the transhuman agenda, which I've talked about in episodes 10 and 11, and I go into it in great detail in pay-per-view in print. The transhuman agenda of connecting all human minds to artificial intelligence by or to the cloud, also known as the smart, which will be run eventually by artificial intelligence by 2030. No way is this all by chance. Indeed, the human-caused climate change scam is a big justification for building the transhuman society. CO2 is 
the gas of life and the more CO2 in the atmosphere the greener a planet we have I destroy human caused climate change in pay-per-view in print and one of the things I go into is I mean how many people know this during the last ice age the atmosphere constituted 118 parts per million of CO2 compared to today's 400 parts per million now when you hear that it's like whoa there's so much more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere now but bear in mind this this lack of CO2 equals plant life to die in the same way humans would with a massive decline of oxygen. Carbon dioxide is the equivalent, obviously, of oxygen for plants. And the optimum for plant life in the natural world is said to be 1,200 parts per million. So if anything, the planet is suffering a CO2 deficit. We don't have enough CO2 in the world. In 2005, according to the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, well, I wouldn't trust everything they say, but even they said... In 2005, there was 379 parts per million CO2 in the atmosphere. During the Jurassic period, with an abundance of trees and plant life feasted on by herbivore dinosaurs, there was 1,800 parts per million. And the dinosaurs didn't die of a catastrophic climate change caused by CO2, as I'm sure you're aware. The planet was incredibly green during dinosaur times. It's no surprise that it would be. I say that part of the reason for this CO2 causes climate change scam, part of the reason, because there are many reasons for it, all of which I go into in pay-per-view in print, is to reduce the amount of plants and trees growing, which plays into the smart cities agenda. 5G, for example, an essential component of the transhuman agenda, requires as few mature trees as possible. So there's so much to be gained for the cult by the idea of humans causing climate change and that's why it's got promotion that it has so we can see all these elements coming together and that's no surprise because society is agenda driven and if you can access that agenda then you can predict the future and we're seeing that future unfold now and this is why people who challenge climate change are called climate deniers and we need to challenge the idea of human caused climate change because of what it's being used to justify I mean, the evidence that humans are not causing climate change is enormous. I mean, when people see the detail in pay-per-view in print, then that's only a fraction of the information. They'll see what I mean. And we either challenge it or we allow the society being justified on the back of the claim that humans are causing climate change to play out. It's a choice and the choice lies with us. So that's it for this week. That's the news. That's the contest in connections. That's pay-per-view. More to come next week. Until then, goodbye.